What's good, guys? Welcome to today's episode of the Go Figure Podcast. Time we've made it to episode 27. And I still broke the number one rule of wearing black. So if I'm a floating Uh-oh. head, I apologize. Oh, hey, at least we got the blue. Yeah. Blue looks good. Yeah, amen. Blue looks good. Funding CEO in the building. All right, guys. So today we're going to go back to that uh, format that we followed before where we talk about some of the current events. And the topics that we're going to talk about are in the money section, freedom and politics, an interesting uh, topic today, sports, family, and mindset. And so some of the key topics today is number one in the money section, how to build a fintech. We're building a fintech, right? We've got different versions of fintech, and now we're doing the official fintech thing. Uh, Last weekend, I went to Las Vegas to the uh, fintech meetup forum, met with some venture capital firms, some other big fintech companies. Uh, Some of these uh, venture capital groups had vested in companies that we like and know, like Toro. And so I, I told them, hey, thank you. Thank you for investing in Turo. I hate running cars. <laughs> I'm never doing it again. Turo is a great, uh, not not necessarily a fintech, but certainly a tech company that's uh, disrupting. And they had some other uh, great companies there. And so yeah, we'll talk about uh, what it takes to build a fintech and document our journey. How How is it going? Is it a struggle? Is it a challenge? What are the takeaways there? So we'll talk a little bit about that in the money section. Awesome. And the freedom, freedom and politics. We're going to talk about TikTok and is it going to get shut down? Dang. Yeah. Some of those, uh, there's a lot of users, millions of users in the U.S. who use the TikTok app. And there's a lot of influencers and artists and dancers and fitness people that use it. And they're very, very concerned about it. And so we're going to talk about, you know, are the security concerns of the government, are they real? Are they not? Etc. And then our next section is the sports section. It's time to talk about football tie because that's what we do. Of course, there's been a little bit of March madness. I guess we can uh, talk about that. But NFL free agency has been very active, very, very active. A lot going on there. So I'm excited to get your feedback on NFL free agency and what's going on there. Because if you guys don't love football, then there's something wrong with you. You've got to love football. Yeah, it's 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 the sport of our country. I mean, I, I know they claim it's baseball. Forget baseball. Oh, no it hasn't likes. been it hasn't been baseball for a long time. <laughs> That's gonna get some people riled up in our office. But yeah, forget baseball. Sorry, Steve. All right, and then we're gonna talk about families. The family mm, section are married couples more wealthy than single individuals, and that's. You know, up, up for debate. I think it's different for a lot of people. That'll be a fun one to talk about. Yeah, and, and even looking at, like, unmarried couples, right? Is Does it actually make more sense financially to get married versus not? Are there What's the data show? And that's what's always great. Like, a lot of people have opinions, and they have thoughts, and they have feedback, and they have what they think are ideas that may or may not be correct. But what is the data actually showing? So I'm a data guy, and, and I want to make the decision and, and get the feedback based on the data. So we'll see what the data shows there. So I know a lot of you are interested in that topic, so we'll see what that uh, ends up being. And then our final section is the uh, mindset section. We've talked a little bit about this before, but we're really going to dive into it. One of our values and principles, you know, here at Seven Figures Funding is to be relentless, to pursue things um, with extraordinary effort and just continuous, uh, relentless, you know, everything it takes to make something happen. We're going to look at some of the most successful people who have succeeded in athletics and business how relentless were they and one of the uh, experts on this topic is a gentleman that we've actually uh you know sponsored events with and that is tim grover uh the late kobe bryant's fitness and mental trainer michael jordan's uh trainer and and the guy he credits with helping him to win his first championships uh dwayne wade same thing uh so tim is an amazing guy we're going to dig into his relentless uh, book and some of the concepts and things that he teaches in there. And if you don't have that relentless mindset, if that's not one of your values and principles, and you feel like you just want to have that, you know, quote unquote, balanced life, and you think you're going to get extraordinary results by not going all in and going relentless, we're going to look and see what his thoughts are on that. And he is an authority on it. So I think we can take what he says as something that is very true based on all the results he's gotten for some of the highest performing athletes and business people in the world, guys. So that's what we got. We got our five topics, our five current topics. Welcome to the Go Figure podcast created for parents and business owners who want to get their money right. My name's Leo Cannell. As a husband and father of five, I've been fortunate to create two eight-figure businesses in the fintech space. 
This podcast will share the values, principles, strategies, tools, and tactics that have helped us to build a fintech empire and provide an epic life for our family. Having been a parent and entrepreneur for 20 years, there's a lot I don't know. There's been a lot of failure. The good news is together, we'll find solutions to creating an epic life powered by a business that we love. Looking forward to jumping into this. So our first topic here, the money section, how to build a fintech. And this is a Stripe article. And how many people do you, th- how many people do you think out there know who Stripe is? Um, I mean, overall, I bet very, very few. I bet business owners, much higher percentage. I'd yeah. say 60, 70% of business owners know who Stripe is. I'd say non-business owners, less than 5%. You know, and I remember when uh, Stripe first came out and I first heard about it, and I think it was back in like 2016 or so, and it was my first first time I kind of built one of those little online training products, and it was uh, basically how to, to finance your business and learn all the different ways about financing your businesses, all the different products out there. It really actually kind of became the foundation for the book, The Business Funding Formula, that I wrote uh, a few years later. And so in that, uh, I was building this course. I don't even remember what I was using. I don't think I was using ClickFunnels. I don't even know if it was Kajabi. Maybe it was. I don't remember. might have been Kajabi. I think it was Kajabi. It was Kajabi. So, so I was building it out, and Kajabi's like, hey, if you want to accept payments and sell your little course online, you know, Stripe is the way to go. And I'm like, oh, cool. Well, what's Stripe? And so... You know, Stripe is a fintech and one of the most successful fintechs of all time. Started by a couple of young guys in, I want to say, Ireland. And these guys have built Stripe into one of the uh, largest merchant processor accounts in the world. So when you need to collect a, a payment from someone online, whether that's a debit credit card, you used to have to jump through a lot of hoops. There was a lot of limitations, and it was very time-consuming. And these guys disrupted that with their idea of making it easier to set up a merchant processing account. And I'm sure there was all sorts of you know issues they had and accounts with fraud, and they were able to get past all of that. Now their company is worth you know tens of billions of dollars, and and they have really, especially in the course industry and in coaching and training, and 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 they're they're connected with Verbo, um, which is really taking on Airbnb. Like they dominate a lot of these industries, and they've done really well. And so Stripe actually put this article together because they do work with a lot of tech companies, and they are of course a fintech themselves. And so they their team put together this article. Like, what is it? What are the best practices for building a fintech company? And I guess maybe the first question to start with is, you know, if you're in business finance and there's kind of two types of business finance, right? There's kind of the old school, you're on the phone, you're emailing clients, you're meeting with them in person. And then there's kind of technology where you turn into a fintech company. So I guess the first place to start is what do you think, Ty, are some of the pros and cons of setting up a fintech versus kind of being an old school traditional business or, or financial service type company? Um, I, I would say the time without massive revenue, right? It, it, when you're building a fintech, inevitably, it's going to take time to build it up and create it. And a lot of times it's a lot of you've got to get tons of users and tons of payments and tons of this and tons of that. It's not so much these lump sums where if you're a consultant, you go get one client, you get paid 10 grand. Now it's on to the next one, on to the next one. So it's kind of that transitioning to having to get many, many, many transactions and many, many, many users and not just the one-off situations where you get paid. I mean, that's, that's been my experience thus far is having to kind of shift the mindset and the idea of, of, getting this out to the masses instead of just working with a handful of people. It's a good point. So when you first get started as kind of a financial services provider, whether you're doing, you know, loans or you're providing consulting services or you're just doing financial planning for someone, I mean, there's so many different, there's there's insurance that are all kind of part of that financial segment. And so if you're doing that one-on-one work, you're going to make a lot more money in the short run than you will in the long run becoming a fintech and really investing in technology and something that can scale to the masses and to you know millions of users. 
But the problem is with most type of, you know, consulting and traditional business or, or financial services companies, like you really, your growth is very linear. You can kind of continue to increase, you can build, you can hire and train a lot of people. But for you to turn that into a $100 million, billion dollar company, something that's really a sellable asset, it's very difficult to do that if you don't actually build it into a fintech company. And so, you know, you look at some of the uh, different uh, fintech companies out there, and I put together a list of it just to kind of give you guys an idea. Well, what are some examples of fintech companies? So one example, uh, going back, you know, 20 plus years would be PayPal. Right, yeah. PayPal was a fintech company, and they started out slow, and then they started to grow and grow fast. And the guys behind uh, PayPal, very impressive entrepreneurs. We're talking about Elon Musk, right? He brought uh, his company together um, with Peter Thiel, and Peter Thiel is, uh, you know, a really incredible uh, tech guy himself. He's behind a company called Palantir, which is kind of uh, does online security for the government and has all these different security programs for governments uh, around the world. And so he and Elon Musk came together and PayPal made it easy to take payments online. Before that, there was really very few options and it wasn't very secure to receive payments online if you were doing an online business. And then that business sold for, I think, over, uh, if not hundreds of millions, uh, maybe a billion dollars to eBay eBay bought it. So PayPal is an example of a fintech. Uh, Another fintech example that we all love and know uh, these days is Venmo. Again, Venmo makes it very easy for you to accept payments. So for example, you know, my daughter, uh, Kayla, started her own little dance studio in our basement. We got a new uh, wood floor and the mirrors up. And all these parents pay her with Venmo. Makes it very easy. She has her little QR code on the door there, and the parents can easily send that payment. Of course, all of us. If you're not using Venmo, it's a big mistake. You should be using Venmo. It makes your life a lot easier. There's another company called Square. And so a lot of payment-type companies, but then you've got uh, companies uh, like Robinhood and SoFi, and you've kind of done uh, some online trading. How, has, uh, how have these fintechs made trading something that's available to the masses oh yeah i mean they've they've completely changed the game and they've come out and created these platforms that speak to younger generations too and make you feel like hey even if i only have a hundred bucks i can still invest it was uh ashton kutcher's company is acorns i think it's called where it literally like if you spend two dollars and 70 cents it's going to take the extra three or 30 cents and invest it for you. So it's always rounding up your transactions and taking it and investing. It's, I mean, it's brilliant. And you're seeing a lot of companies that previously existed that are having to transition and become fintechs and they're starting to kill it again. And then you're seeing others like, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is ADP, right? I, I would imagine they're losing clients in the masses because their technology is awful and new fintechs are coming out making payroll so easy and automated like it's it's interesting and i've you know going back to 2000 um 2005 i had that was the first time i started using adp and i thought an adp was great they were kind of the the fintech technology company back then in 2005 they've been around for a long time but they had you know pretty uh pretty good online software where you could run payroll and take care of your your team and your company and they take care of the taxes for you, and it was great. And then you fast forward here, and it just is another example of the old, uh, you know, blockbuster versus Netflix, right? Netflix cam- comes on, they invest in technology, they make it easier, they they remove the friction and and the pain of having to go to Blockbuster and get DVDs and pay all those late fees and all of the pain that comes with that. To now you can stream it, you can watch it online, you don't have to leave your house. It's very easy and convenient. And Blockbuster goes out of business, Netflix takes over, and that's kind of what you see happen every day with fintech companies. And so you've got uh, companies like Every and others. Um, Bamboo is a big one here in Utah where you can run payroll and all these different things, and they have better technology than the old guards, the bureaucratic types like ADP. And so that's exactly what happens. So, you know, if you're trying to build a fintech, Stripe talks about a few different things you need to do. Number one, they say identify a high need and underserved audience or not necessarily underserved audience, but in, you know, a need that there's a lot of pain in, right? There's something that is a pain. So something that we saw years ago was a lot of people would go to the bank 
to try and get money to start a business, and the bank would turn them down most of the time, would ding their, their credit, and incredibly, that really hasn't changed much. That's kind of what it's like, and unless you're a big company with a lot of collateral, a high net worth, and you're trying to get financing for a brand new business, you're going to have a tough time doing it, going to your local bank. The odds of that happening are very low, probably less than 10% of small business owners are going to get financing from their local bank. And so for us, we identified that as an issue, a challenge, a need that a lot of clients have. It was underserved area, and we could step in there and provide better financing options to these small business owners that were trying to get off the ground. So just an example of taking something that is not overly complicated, but right now there's not a lot of groups that are doing a good job of that. And so that's sort of where we jumped in, right? And so then you've got companies like Stripe where, hey, there's lots of companies where you can you know, make your credit card payment uh, through them. Uh, you know, you think of the old machines at your grocery store and those keep on getting a little bit better here and here, but you swipe your card and you make your payment. And, and so some of these companies have made that much, much easier. And that's what these fintech companies are doing. So you identify that need and underserved audience. And then what's, what's the next step, Ty? Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to get the feedback from the customers. You've got to understand the problems and the challenges. And I think that that's one thing I would add to that first step, Leo, identify a need and, under, and, and underserved audience. What I'm finding a lot in fintech space, too, is groups are going out there. They're finding businesses that are absolutely killing it, that are providing a solution, that are, are solving the problem for the need. And they're just doing it a little bit differently, right? You look at Rex and yeah. Ramp and Divi. They're, yes. they're all kind of doing the exact same thing. You look at Podium and Weave and a million different variations of exactly what they do. I mean, that they, they didn't see an underserved audience. They saw an extremely served audience and said, I'm going to take this and do it my way and just tweak it a little bit. And they're taking a huge portion of, of that served audience. Exactly right. And they're like, hey, we're going to do it a little bit better. And then they'll maybe focus on different verticals. I knew they do a lot with uh, small medical practices and dentists. Uh, does a company like Weave and then Podium was, you know, just reviews, right? Hey, that you're going to do these reviews. It's funny. I was uh, looking at uh, when I lived in Draper, um, you know, one of one of the, my neighbors there, nice guy, he would uh, come by and uh, and uh, visit us uh, once in a while was a guy named Ben Diltz. And he started, uh, he was the co- he was actually the co-founder of Lucid Software. And so I don't know why I was like researching this last night, just looking at these different companies. And so a tech company, just a software that basically they have a whiteboard software. And then they have that software where you can kind of... Um, the flow charts. Yeah, the, the flow charts. Yeah, they made those flow charts. And they were the first ones. And, and that's all they did was flow charts. And these flow Wild. charts... They got users in all these companies, all the big tech companies, and then he brought in his uh, co-founder, Carlson, who had been working at Google previously, and he was going to school here at BYU, and they came together, and and now that company, I think, is valued at like $3 billion. They've raised over $600 million in funding rounds. And just remarkable, you know, what they've been able to do. I am curious if they're actually turning a profit at this point, if they're, uh, you know, not turning a profit, which is always, uh, to me, kind of baffling after so much time. You just never seem to turn a profit. That's got to be concerning if you're a tech company. But, boy, they've done a masterful, masterful job. And I remember it was funny, like, people in our neighborhood, they had no idea what this guy was doing. And uh, I remember even some neighbors were talking negatively about him. I'm like, boy, you guys should really respect this guy, what he's done. So, so. Get customer feedback about problems, challenges, and so that's it. People will tell you all the pain points like, oh, I hate ADP. They're so difficult. Their technology is inferior. I can't connect it to my CRM. And so when this other company came around, every were like, oh, you can connect to our CRM. So now what used to take us 10 hours to get payroll done, what's it take us? Jillian, you're, you're right there. What does it take, 30 minutes, if that? I mean, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it's it's awesome. So it literally took our need from having a full-time employee spending sometimes 10, 15, 20 hours a week, complicated um, Excel spreadsheets and formulas and mistakes. Yeah, tons of mistakes. Mistakes were made. And now it's an automated process connected to our CRM. Uh, The mistakes made are almost none. 
and it takes a 20th or a 30th of the time that it used to. That's technology. We can technically pay daily now. That's that's what's crazy is every day as commissions are generated, we could hit submit and pay our reps every single day, but Remarkable. we choose not to. Yeah, I mean, they, they get customer feedback and understand the problems and challenges. The, the first fintech or tech company that comes to mind when you say that is Lyft, right? You see Uber come out, and yeah. Uber's killing it, which seriously disrupted the... Uh, the taxi cab industry and it's a very interesting story if you haven't watched that that uber show i think it's super on pumped showtime yeah it's very intriguing but uh lyft comes out and, and realizes and understands because of problems and challenges that uber is crushing it with their clients and their their riders but guess what their drivers absolutely hate it they hate the way they're getting paid they hate mm-hmm. the way they can't get tipped and so lyft comes in and completely changes that and all of a sudden all the drivers are going from uber to lyft and it became this huge fiasco but it I think Lyft did a phenomenal job of no getting the feedback and the problems about not just their clients, but their contractors and their employees. So, I mean, that's what it happens, right? So, f- <coughs> excuse me, for us, for years, you know, we would help clients get loans, lines of credit, business credit cards. They'd have their bank accounts, business, personal. And they would say, how am I supposed to manage all this? Like, i got to log into 15 to 20 different websites. It's very confusing. How am I going to make the payments on time? I am super stressed about this. I am not super pumped, right? And so that's what they would tell us. And for years, we're like, oh man, somebody, there's got to be a way to do this where they could see it all in one place and manage their business and their net worth and do it easier. And so after a period of time, you know, as an entrepreneur, you just, you hear that problem and you're like, well, let's solve it. Yeah. That's what entrepreneurs do. They take a problem, they solve it. And so documenting our journey, we're like, all right, we're going to solve it. And it's been, you know, an up and down process and finding the right technologies and then bringing in the right technology people to build that out. And now the result of it is myfigures.com, which you can, you know, manage all of your accounts in one place that is built out. The money manager is built out and clients can see all those things. And then there's additional features and and improvements that we need to make. And we want to be able to automate a lot of what we do with business finance. And then, you know, what about cash flow? Can you actually 70% of small businesses never earn any profits? Like they're struggling to actually earn profits and a decent income at the end of the day. And so they need help. And so those are the challenges we're listening to. And even as we build this out uh, further and we go through raising, you know, we've bootstrapped uh, to an eight-figure business, but to take that next step, unless we want to just drain all the profits and even, you know, more than that, like that's what it takes to hire developers and build that out. And that's where you really do have to get in that capital raising ecosystem to build your own fintech. And then and then it says, uh, you know, after that, diversify your revenue streams. I'm actually not even sure what they're meaning by that. Well, that that's something, I mean, I think SoFi has done such a good, a good job that's at a when good you example. talk about diversifying yeah. your revenue streams. SoFi comes out and says, okay, we're going to solve a need and we're going to provide personal loans. Yes. And they made a name for themselves. And then they go out and they start investing and they get VC money and they become an actual fintech. Instead of just doing personal loans, you can now bank with SoFi. You can now invest with SoFi. You can buy crypto with SoFi. You can get health and, and life insurance with SoFi. You can literally, like it, it is a so full-fledged financial marketplace. Yeah. There's affiliate marketing inside there. So that's something that SoFi, I think, especially if you watch their stock, like they struggled. They they were killing it. I thought they were the best loan company out there. And all of a sudden their stock is just falling and falling and falling and falling. But then you realize all of these different things that, they're adding to their marketplace. And I think during that time, their stock was just crumbling. They were just investing millions and millions and millions of dollars into their platform. And I think they're starting to kind of recoup a little bit, even amidst all of this crazy stuff going on in the the fintech world. Like SoFi is really, really diversifying their, their revenue streams. Yeah, I really like SoFi. I think they're building a really strong foundation. And, uh, you know, you can always uh, consult your investment advisors or whatnot, but they they seem like they've got a great foundation. And so they 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 do they started with personal loans. They also do student loans, yeah, and mortgages and all those other things, uh, stocks and retirement accounts and insurance. And they've really and they they have some stuff on credit there as well. And so if they've done a great job of really building this membership up and providing a lot of value. And they've done it where other 
you know, lending companies have not, and they have diversified. You, you, you look at a company like uh, Lending Club and some of these other Prosper. Prosper was the first that started doing these online loans, and they've really struggled from all their financials and things that I've read online. And the, maybe one of those reasons is they didn't ever diversify. Once yeah. you have a core product, then you need to start providing other solutions that are in the same you know, uh, path there. So for us, you know, we're going to, we have a membership with my figures where you can manage all of your accounts. We're going to have our business finance marketplace accessible right there in my figures. There's going to be an affiliate opportunity. Uh, we're going to have a cash flow piece where you can manage your profitability. And instead of complicated QuickBooks, which is a mess, you'll be able to know where your profit and loss stands at and start with a profit first mindset. And then there's going to be other supports and other systems, and there's going to be all these different income streams that provide value to our customers. And so that's where we're at in this journey of building out our own fintech and just thought it would be interesting to kind of share that with you guys so you can see what the keys are to building a fintech and what most of you who are in this uh, show, in this audience, you know, you're in the business finance space, you're a coach, consultant, trainer. And so hopefully that provides some value to you guys. Now, our next segment is going to be our freedom politics segment. And I'm interested to, to see what you think about this, Ty. But basically, uh, TikTok's CEO uh, went in to Congress today to get interviewed. And, they, and, and it started out where Republicans were you know, very concerned about uh, security, national security, with TikTok being able to basically get really intimate information about anybody in the United States. And the issue with that is unlike a Facebook or a Google, all these, you know, American companies where there is this idea that they have Americans, I mean, they, they, have, they want to do what's best for their business, but they're Americans, so they, they have loyalty, they're, they're trying to do what's best for their users, uh, you know, for their company and for America, but TikTok is owned by BitDance, which is a Chinese company. And so basically, and you guys, you've seen this, like uh, entrepreneurs in China or companies, if they don't do what the Chinese government wants, they disappear, right? Jack Ma, who started Alibaba, multi-billion dollar company, incredible entrepreneur, all of a sudden disappears for two years and we don't know what happened and who knows what happened to all of his money. I'm pretty sure the government took it back, right? And so the same worry that uh, the Chinese government, you know, it, it started out where the Republicans were really concerned, and now the Biden administration's concerned, and a lot of Democrats are concerned too. And so anyway, there's an article here on Forbes, and it says TikTok scrutiny CEO will tell lawmakers the app is safe and it's good. And so let's let's break some of this down. I guess first of all, what are what are your thoughts on TikTok? Do you have the uh, app on your phone? No. No, I've ne I've never downloaded TikTok. I don't I don't understand what you can do on TikTok that other platforms can't serve. Like I I think you can do everything there without giving your entire life to the to the Chinese government. And that's just the way I look at it. Jillian, how how long are TikTok videos? Generally, sixty uh, seconds or shorter, right? It's fifteen seconds to three minutes now. Okay, they've increased to three minutes. So it's basically short videos. Which you can consume on Facebook, you can consume even better on Instagram, and you know Instagram Shorts, yeah. and then now we've got YouTube Shorts, right? Whatever and, happened to Vine? Wasn't, you, wasn't Vine just fine? Vine, Vine was great, and uh, Vine eventually uh, died. Although uh, Jake Paul started out in Vine, and then yeah, uh, did pretty did pretty well, and then transitioned <laughs> to YouTube. But yeah, YouTube's got Shorts, Instagram's got Shorts. It's basically just short. Uh, quick, witty videos that you put together, and that's what TikTok is. The thing about TikTok is you hear about their their algorithm. And so this TikTok algorithm is very unique and different compared to some of the others. And obviously, you know, Instagram, YouTube, they're going to send you things based on your interests. And TikTok will do that to a certain extent too. But there's a concern with the youth of our nation who are using TikTok and in essence, if you compare what TikTok is in China, there's a lot of videos for the youth that are educational, that are challenging the youth to work harder, to get smarter, to be more successful. And yet TikTok videos in the U.S., what have you heard about those, Ty? I, truth be told, I've heard of a lot of like dancing trends, mm -hmm. um, hacks, like life hacks and and. I, I don't know, oddly satisfying, I guess, is what they, they call those. Like, I've seen some of those. Because you can still look at TikToks without 
being on TikTok. I get them sent to me all the time. You click on them, you watch a video. It's like, whatever. I don't need to provide all my information to them. I mean, look at it like this. If the U.S. government owned Facebook and had rights to everything inside of Facebook, behind the scenes and whatnot, do you think the Chinese would allow their 12-year-olds to go set up a Facebook account? Yeah, not happening. No, not happening. no chance. So there's no U.S. social media companies in China. It's the hypocrisy with this whole situation that drives me insane, right? China's like, how dare you? And you can't force us to do this, that, and the other, you know, with the TikTok app. And yet, is Facebook in China? No, it's not. Is YouTube in China? Absolutely not. What about Instagram? Nope. LinkedIn? Neither. And so all of these social media companies here in the U.S. that are set up, if China, you know, wanted to allow those in their society, but then that might allow their people to get ideas and to want more freedom and to wonder what's going on. One of the funniest things ever was during the World Cup just a few months ago. All of a sudden, that was one of the things that the Chinese government allowed their people to watch. So they're watching the World Cup and they're trying to create different feeds to where the people of China don't actually see it. All these people are sitting in this massive stadium with 100,000 people, and they're not masked up, and they're not super afraid of COVID. And so they're trying to almost present a different uh, version that actually, you know, COVID is still going hard in the world, but that was not the case. And so this, this control from the Chinese government, they try to portray a completely different life because they control everything to their people. And their people started getting upset. And then that's when you started to see finally China had to loosen up on their lockdowns and and whatnot with, uh, with the pandemic. And so interestingly how that happened. And yet they can tell us what we should be able to allow and that they should be able to bring their companies in here, no problem. But we are very controlled and can't bring any social media companies into their country. And so it's that type of hypocrisy or the hypocrisy of... You know, they send a balloon, uh, balloons across our country, which, by the way, could have been extremely dangerous if there was an EMP or something like that happening. And then they're all, and then they're all, you know, butthurt, like, oh, you shot down our balloon. How dare you? And it's just like crazy the amount of hypocrisy and contradictions that the, the Chinese government, uh, you know, sends out. So from that point of view, do they have the United States and our people's best intention with their app that they can control, that they can monitor and oversee on everything? You tell me. No. No. There's, it's just crazy. When you break it down like that, it's absolutely absurd. But 99% of the TikTok user base in the U.S. doesn't give a rat's ass about China knowing their information. That's, That's what it true. comes down to. That's true. And so, uh, anyway, here's some interesting uh, tidbits about this. Chu, who's the CEO of TikTok, uh, will tell Congress that more than 150 million people in the U.S. use TikTok. That's a lot of users. 150 million users in the U.S. use TikTok. Uh, he will outline various efforts on TikTok's part to protect minor users. And that's been the issue. There's a lot of, you know, semi-porn and and uh, inappropriate stuff that you don't want young kids uh, checking out. And Instagram, YouTube, there's a real push to make sure that that's, uh, that's put together to kind of shield and filter those out for young users. And yet TikTok, that hasn't been the case. And so there's been a lot of concern that a lot of crazy stuff is being allowed for minor users on TikTok. And TikTok's been behind on that. And if you were looking at it from the Chinese government's point of view, will they filter and control that very strong? They even have time limits for kids in China for the TikTok app. But is that the case in the U.S.? Absolutely not. And what they'll show, what I've uh, seen in a lot of research is that TikTok, young TikTok users are shown things that don't do anything to help them get smarter or to learn things. And in fact, uh, take them down rabbit holes where they become dumber and waste time with all sorts of meaningless stuff and, and semi-porn stuff in U.S. And then in China, their youth are getting a completely different experience that's actually going to benefit them. And so again, very clear what the, the, the end goal and the, the outcome is going to be. And so for a lot of Congress now, you've seen a lot of states that are like they've outlawed TikTok use in their government agencies. And now the federal government, I think, has, has done the same. And there's like a 30-day window where that's going to be initiated. So federal government employees won't be able to use TikTok on any of their platforms anymore to kind of clear that up. And so the next step is most experts uh, believe that unless TikTok will sell their U.S. version to a U.S.-based company that they will be shut down in the U.S. Which I, you know, I kind of have mixed feelings and whatnot about. With, with the underagers, I, I totally 
agree something has to happen. I do kind of wish that that was on the parents, though. Like, why aren't parents stepping up and, and putting their foot down and taking charge of what their children can and can't see? You know, that that's what's upsetting to me. It's like you're going to complain that your kid is seeing porn as an 8-year-old on TikTok, but why the hell does your 8-year-old have a phone with Internet that can get TikTok? Like, that's the bigger problem there. And I, I feel like, yes, the government can step in and do something about it, which is great to see them actually stand up to someone like China. But at the same time, I feel like, this comes down to the parents needing to to step up and actually be parents. No question about it. Remember when my daughter was, you know, maybe uh, 13, 14, TikTok was starting to get big. And so a lot of her dancing friends were, you know, downloading TikTok on their phone. And these are just young girls and they're making these, you know, very sexualized type videos and posting them up on TikTok. And there was like this competition among these young girls and that's still happening today. And so you can, you can, you know, guess what uh, some of the outcomes of that has been in terms of, you know, cyberbullying, et cetera, other things. And so, yeah, parents are asleep at the wheel with that. And so uh, Caleb made the decision she wasn't going to download that and she wasn't going to participate in that. And, and you know, she's got uh, other social media accounts, but she's very disciplined in her use of it. Uh, and most most of our kids are. And and that is part of your, your job as a parent, to educate your kids on how best to navigate social media and so forth. And there's actually cool apps that can control that. Like you can yes. put an app on your child's phone that says you can only be in this app for 60 minutes a week. Like that's, there's some really cool things out there that if you have a child that is struggling with that, go do some research and, and take control. Yeah. Discipline is, is one of the most important thing young kids can, can learn. And I think a lot of research is showing that today's generation has, you know, less and less of that in today's instant gratification world and parents uh, oftentimes just are, are not, uh, not focused in on that. And hopefully they'll make a change and do better with that. All right, guys, uh, it's time to move into our sports segment here. Heavy, heavy topics, our first two topics. So this is uh, it's time to talk about NFL free agency here in 2023. And, you know, it's uh, the first quarter is coming to an end here and pretty soon it'll be, August and September football will be right around the corner. But obviously, we got free agency going on now. We've got the NFL draft coming up. So, you know, what are some of the most head-scratching signings uh, that you've seen so far in NFL free agency, Ty? Okay, let's let's break these down. I'm curious to see what, what ESPN calls some of the most head-scratching. But for me, the biggest head-scratching signing hasn't even occurred yet. We're, uh, we're, we're okay. going to hear about it in the the next week or so, but it's it's Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets. Yeah. It's that, just... That's the biggest free agent story <laughs> going on right now, no doubt about it. It's almost comical to me, and I'm, I'm just so excited to watch the Jets still suck, even with Aaron Rodgers, because he's he is on his way out. He's going to go get one more massive contract. The Jets are going to give up the farm. They're going to be in the same situation next year, except way less money and way less draft picks because they're going to give up everything they can because they think they're going to win right now. In fact, Vegas, Vegas odds as of yesterday have um, the Jets as the sixth most likely team to win the Super Bowl. And I like, wow, I'm just dumbfounded. <laughs> so, so hold on though, Ty. All right, let's say the Aaron Rodgers do, trade does happen. He goes over to the Jets. Like, do the Jets actually have the offensive weapons to? Yeah, I mean they've got a good defense, they've got a great coach, but do they have offensive weapons? I, I mean they've who's got to throw the ball to. They they've got Garrett Wilson, who was it was a good good rookie wide receiver. Um, they just traded out. They got rid of um, Elijah Moore, so he's gone. They brought in Alan Lazard, but wait a minute, like how did Alan Lazard and and uh, Aaron Rodgers do last year? <laughs> right, oh, like let's just move these so same two people to another location with probably a, a worse offensive line and a worse secondary and a worse running game because he had some of the he had some really good running backs in Green Bay. Yeah, he did. Granted the the Jets they have a few good young running backs, but it's not going to be a different situation. I would argue that the Packers supporting staff around Aaron Rodgers last year was just as good if not better than what the Jets have to provide and everyone said, "Oh, Robert Sullivan." No. The Jets I'm excited to look back on this episode and say the Jets will still be a 500 
if not one game less than 500 team next year with Aaron Rodgers. Well, and let's take a look at the at the uh, division they're in, right? Is that an easy division that they're going to be in there? No. The Jets? They, yeah. they are going to have to play the Dolphins twice, who I think have had probably some of the best signings offseason here, and we're already a very good team. The Bills pretty much brought everyone back. The Patriots are always going to be the Patriots and Bill Belichick. Like, the, the Jets could still take last in their division. I kind of look at this as... They're looking at Aaron Rodgers as he's going to come save the Jets and get us one Super Bowl before he retires. I compare this to Matt Ryan going to the Colts, and I think it's going to be a fairly similar situation. Or even, you know, Brett Favre going to the Jets. Uh, It's funny that both uh, Favre and Aaron Rodgers doing the same thing. Going to New York to save that. That lasted one year when Brett Favre uh, went there. Did not uh, end pretty, and then he went and had an amazing uh, year the next year for the Minnesota Vikings. So... Be interesting to see what happens there. But, yeah, it seems like they just um, – now, did I see something about Hardman? Was that McCall Hardman signing with the Jets? Yeah, he's, he's going to go to the Jets, which, I, I mean, mean – little, But he can't stay healthy. Yeah, I, mean, he, I don't know. He was a very – I would say as a receiver, and I could be way off, but I, I bet he was in the 50 to 40th range in receiver when yeah. it comes to production. No. and. He's he's not going to come save the Jets. They needed to bring in a few big name receivers and pass catchers and tight ends if if they really wanted to try and make a splash and they they didn't do it. The other massive head scratcher for me um it was the Lions. The the Lions brought in a running back and paid way too much money. I can't I'm I'm drawing a blank right now which running back you know, I, I was so dumbfounded by it that I, I have a, a good friend that's a, a Lions fan, and I even sent it to him with the head scratch emoji, and he was like, what the hell are they doing? Wow. It was the most bizarre. Let's see. And they I'll, finished I'll pull it up. the year so strong. They had so much momentum, and it was just uh, just impressive to see the way that they played uh, last year. Of course, uh, they had uh, Jamal Williams had a, a great year, and, and then they uh, – they let him go, so he went over to the Saints. And boy, sometimes you miss—you uh, underestimate how important that short yardage is to uh, getting in the end zone and making your life easier as a team. But we'll see, you know, what happens there. So, what was the best overall free agent uh, signings uh, that we've seen so far? Yeah, I'll—I'll I'll quickly. It was David Montgomery. The the Lions went and gave him a three-year, eighteen million dollar contract to back up Swift, which just made no sense to me but uh anyways on on to the good ones i mean i guess there's a reason they're the lions year after year after year decade after decade (laughs) yeah yeah i I mean there there were a few really big moves i honestly i would argue that that the dolphins getting jalen ramsey to come into town alongside of xavian howard and javon holland like that is going to be one of the best secondaries in the nfl and one of the the more elite secondaries we've seen in a while not to mention they have Nick Chubb, Emmanuel Ogba, like that. Wait, that, what? Or sorry, not Nick Chubb, Bradley Chubb on, okay. on the edge. So they're, they're front, they've got Chubb, they've got Ogba. Uh, like, they've oh, got my word, Phillips. if they sign Chubb on top of that, the <laughs> Dolphins are really ready. No, they, they did bring back their running backs. They got Jeff Wilson back, and yeah. they got Raheem Mostert back. Yeah, and, like Mostert. But, you know, uh, there's, some, there's still some really good running backs that are going to hit the free agency market here that – you're going to see some interesting moves, and a lot of people think that Dalvin Cook could be going to Buffalo, and that would be oh, that would be super helpful. For that Buffalo. would be scary, that especially be scary. with with the weather there. You get a big, strong guy, and and uh, yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, I think uh, I think the Raiders paid way too much to have. Jimmy G come into town and just be a, a mediocre quarterback for them. Interesting. Yeah, I saw a, I saw a lot of statistical comparisons between Jimmy Garoppolo and Derek Carr, and there was not a whole lot of differentiation there. I guess there's the familiarity that uh, Josh McDaniels has worked with Jimmy G at the Patriots, but boy, that was a long, long time ago. Um, Jimmy G certainly, I think, maybe has had a slightly higher win percentage than Derek Carr, but he's certainly struggled to be healthy and stay healthy. And clearly the 49ers have never had long-term confidence in him either. We're talking about, I don't know, was that Kyle Shanahan calling that or maybe the owners or maybe both? What do you think? I think it's a little bit of both. I I think Kyle Shanahan has a lot more pull than people think, though. Well, he certainly seems like a great coach. I mean, everything he did last year I thought was pretty remarkable. Yeah, I 
I, I kind of liked some of the Patriots moves too. They they were able to bring in Juju Smith Schuster, who I think yep. had a very, very good comeback season. Um and, and Got didn't really get, ring. Yeah, yeah, and didn't even get to really be that that main elite guy. And I think he's ready to step back into that that role and I you know New England's gonna really learn how to utilize him and they went and got Mike Gusecki who was a very in my opinion very underutilized tight end in Miami with the Mike McDaniels offense so I I wouldn't be surprised to see Mike Gusecki go into New England and be a a top five tight end honestly all right so we've talked about uh, some of the head scratchers when it comes to NFL free agent signing we've talked about some of the really solid signings now which team do you feel like had the best offseason so far in free agency? Obviously, you know, it's going to be biased. I'm, I'm a huge Dolphins fan, but if you, if you do your research and you look at who, who is the most improved team this offseason, most people are going to say the Dolphins. Like, the, the Dolphins really went out and, no pun intended, made a splash, and they brought in some, some really big players and big names and filled some, some holes that they had in their team last year. It... It, honestly, it comes down to Tua's health. If Tua finds a way to stay healthy, they are going to be a Super Bowl favorite, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, they, they've got all the weapons there. They showed so much promise throughout the year, and just literally his uh, his health was really the only thing uh, that changed things. And, and even with I mean, even with that, they almost beat uh, Buffalo at Buffalo in that first round of the playoffs. So yeah. uh, certainly they're uh, a very good team, and... But yeah, defense. Defense at the end did kind of. I mean, they allowed a lot of yards there yeah. to Buffalo in that game. So should be really helpful. Yeah, with some of the additions that they've made in Jalen Ramsey, Super Jaylen Bowl Ramsey. winning cornerback, one of the best over the last several years, and probably has a big chip on his shoulder because now he's uh, moved from you know L.A. to Miami. And, yeah, uh, I mean, getting Emmanuel Ogba healthy, getting Byron Jones back. Like people don't realize how many starters the Dolphins lost last year and still were a very exciting team. So I, I think the Dolphins absolutely are, are the most improved team this offseason. I think that this answer could change drastically depending what happens with the uh, the Baltimore Ravens. So we'll, we'll see what's going to happen. What are they doing? They, what are they doing with They're them? just not willing to give with out the, the Deshaun Watson type of contract. The, the NFL owners are putting their foot down and saying, yeah. that's bullshit, we're not doing that anymore, and... It, they're they're all stick, sticking with it. Like there's a reason Lamar still doesn't have a contract, and so Baltimore's just going to have to wait and wait and wait. And obviously, they they structured that deal so that he realistically probably will be on another team before the start of the season. That that's my opinion. I really? I think it'd be interesting. I could see him going to Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta's a possible I've move. That, yeah. I was listening to NFL radio this morning, and they were saying if somehow the Aaron Rodgers deal falls through they could really see him possibly being with the Jets, and that would be scary. That is a, a very, very fast team. That that team would scare me. And Aaron Rodgers' Jets team does not, though. Yeah, no, I mean, he's a great athlete. They've got a great running game. They have a decent offensive line there, and they and they got they got a couple of additions there at wide receiver. Yeah, Lamar could do uh, really well there in the Jets, and you're right, probably a be- it's certainly a better long-term fit yeah. for the Jets. And who's going to sell more tickets Short term, they probably both will, but maybe longer term, it would be Lamar. I mean, think about Aaron Rodgers. He's he always he's always doing something weird in the off season. Like, so he went and did this darkness thing. Did you hear about that? Yeah, he went and did this darkness thing where he lived in the dark for, for I don't know how long it was, a week or something, two or three days. And he's always like searching for a greater meaning in life. So I don't know. He's not like Tom Brady, right? He's not all invested. You know, three hundred sixty-five days a year working on my craft, improving. You know, TB12, pliability, all these different things, so we can play till 45. You sort of get the feeling that he's about done. You can almost stick a fork in him. And uh, maybe this is one last hurrah where he will, he's, he's just saying, oh, we'll see what happens. I'll get paid and get some guaranteed money. Move we'll to see. New York. Yeah. Be great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Ezekiel Elliott still needs to land on a team. Odell Beckham is is apparently very healthy and very strong and, and ready to land on a team. There's, there's still a lot of moves to be made this offseason, but – to sum it up, I, I think the Dolphins are the most improved. I think the uh, the Panthers actually have done really well. I've read that, yeah. Yeah, I think the Panthers have made a lot of really good, strong moves to, to build, not so much to, to be a win-now team. Yeah, but. they're not contending anytime soon. What about the Saints? That's been uh, my family's team here going back to 2005 when Drew Brees uh, first uh, came there. So they brought in Derek Carr. Yeah. They restructured Michael Thomas. I don't even... 
that that guy that guy kind of makes me uh, makes me sick to be honest. I mean, he signed yeah. that huge ever since he signed that big contract. I mean, he's barely played, and it sure seemed like. And then he waited the last second to do surgery and and missed an entire year for that when he could have gotten the surgery way earlier. Like just mind boggling things that uh, just one of those guys. He got his money, got paid, and literally all of the uh, dedication seemed like it went out the window. Yeah, I I kind of feel like they restructured that to send him on his way out to to make it more realistic for a trade. Um, I think the team's done with him. I think the staff's done with him. I think the fans are done with him. I think Michael Thomas needs a new home. Um, get with someone that can really take control of him. It'd be interesting to see him in Kansas City, see how, how Andy Reid could hone yeah. him in because he's very talented. I you know, I, I feel like the Saints offseason has been kind of safe. Um, I, I think they're more of a it's time to start preparing for the future, not so much a, a win right now. I, I was kind of baffled by the uh, bringing back – Jameis Winston I didn't understand that when you have Derek Carr who who's a very healthy quarterback you have Taysom that can jump in I I wouldn't have spent the money on did on they Jameis. let uh, Andy Dalton go yeah Dalton is oh, okay oh I can't remember where he went I, I I don't remember but yeah Andy Dalton he might be in Carolina oh yeah okay. I think Andy Dalton might be in Carolina I'll have to look that Boy, up Carolina is kind of like the carousel for quarterbacks like, yeah they just bring them in and just <laughs> they move them about I mean there's just been so Baker much. Baker went in and out there, like yeah, Baker to Tampa. That that's Baker an interesting Tampa. one. Yeah, Tampa. Tampa's got some talent. They just they yeah. really had. They had an injury, uh, a big injury year last year too, especially yeah. on their offensive line. So, uh, if their defense plays well, and their offensive line comes back healthy, and and somebody can sling the ball around, then Tampa has a chance to be to have a decent year. And and again, that's a weak division, right? The Saints yeah. aren't great. Atlanta is certainly not great, and, and definitely, you know, Carolina's not great either. Yeah. So. It's going to remain a very poor division. So, yeah, Tampa could come out of that division as a, as yeah. a winner, and they did that last year even with a losing record. So, yeah. there you go. I let's Let me one more sum up here because, like I said, the, the Dolphins are the most improved. I, I'm going to change my number two from the Panthers. I'm going to say the second most improved team is the Denver Broncos. And it comes down to bringing oh, in Sean Payton. That was oh, a that's sneaky. That's move. a good point. Sean Payton is back. That is a good point. Denver's defense was not bad last year. In no. fact, their defense was stellar because they were in a lot of twelve to thirteen, fourteen to fifteen type score games at the end of the you know throughout the season. They just couldn't put any points on. The yeah, board. I mean, there's there's starting running back season ending. Uh, their start Tim Patrick, who I'd argue is probably a top two receiver season ending injury, Garrett Bowles wow. season ending. Like they were very, very banged up. They had a brand new quarterback. They had a coach, first year coach, didn't really know how to, he's a great, great, great offensive mind. Didn't really know how to run a team in my opinion, but Sean Payton coming in with the type of skilled players he has with the O line getting healthy. I, I think the Broncos could, could surprise a few teams, including the chiefs this year. Yeah, I think he'll definitely get uh, Russell Wilson's confidence back, get him in uh, a lot of uh, short passing schemes, utilizing his skill set. They're going to run the ball better, and they're going to be much more efficient on offense. They probably average an additional seven, eight points a game, and if they do that and their defense plays like they did last year, they've got, they, they're a playoff team for sure. Yep. Who's, who would you pick to win next year? What, where, where would the odds be in terms of who are the two teams that would be most likely to represent the Super Bowl? Oh, wow. Yeah, I the Eagles didn't lose a lot. They I mean, their top corner left yeah. decided, you know, they cut him and then all of a sudden they're able to restructure a one-year deal and brought him back. So he's back with the team. Uh Kelsey decided to stay put. I mean, they they didn't lose a lot and they're a young team, a, an exciting team. Jalen Hurts are. is fantastic. I I could see Eagles Chiefs again. That wouldn't surprise me. I could see the Dolphins representing the AFC. I could see the Bills representing the AFC. I think it's either Dolphins, Bills, or Chiefs, in my opinion, out of the AFC. Maybe the Broncos make a splash there. In the uh, NFC, I think the Cowboys are going to stay very, very competitive. I think the Vikings are going to fall off the ship here. I, I don't think we're going to see the Vikings. I think the 49ers, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the offseason with the 49ers, and do we see Brock Purdy continue, continuing the run, or do we see oh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, Trey Lance come in and take over? It, the, the 49ers, okay, I'm going to revise it. 49ers are going to the Super Bowl from the NFC. AFC, 
You think 49ers will beat the Eagles? I do. Yep. Okay. Yep. They're they're younger. They're more talented. They've got a better coach. I I think the 49ers, dude, they they almost made it to the Super Bowl with no quarterback, literally not even a quarterback, period. So I I think the 49ers go, and I'm going to go with the Chiefs. Chiefs, Niners. Chiefs are good. Chiefs are tough. Get get a little uh, replay going. All right, guys, we've got just a few minutes here. So our final topic is going to be the one that, uh, that we were talking about here in terms of uh, who is going to be more wealthy. Where are the odds? Life is all about putting odds in your favor. Business is all about putting the odds in your favor. And so the question is, and the number of people getting married in today's world, that, that number is decreasing uh, year after year after year. And so the question is, does it make sense more from a financial standpoint to get married? Are married people traditionally and even individually while they're married, are they more wealthy? Do they make more financial progress together as a couple versus an unmarried couple or versus just two single people, you know, male, female, whatever the case may be? And so the Wall Street Journal has a recent article, very recent, in fact, uh, this is November of 2022, and the data that they showed, um, I th- want to say it was four times greater was what they were saying. Let's see what it says here. Four times greater, and that's the second you get married. That That's not saying a single person. That's saying you're a couple and you're married, or you're a couple that just lives together. And I mean, you may have combined finances, but the separator here is just marriage, right? Yes, just basically getting married. And and so not just living together and spending years together as a couple, but actually the married couple is four times more wealthy. And so let's uh, see what it says. It says, the mystery, though, is why cohabitating but unmarried couples struggle to build wealth in the same way as married couples do. As of 2019, the median net worth for cohabitating couples ages 25 to 34 was just $17,000, a quarter that of the $68,000 for married couples of that same age rank, according to data from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And if you're a single person, it's 7341 so you can add two singles up. So if you're single, you know, in the age gap of 25 to 34 and, you know, you're not married, your average net worth for two people is about 14600 Two people who are not married but live together cohabitate 17000 But for the married couple, 68000 So significantly more wealth. And so interesting, it says the wealth gap between partnered and married couples is larger than one might expect, said Anna Kent, a senior researcher at the St. Louis Fed. Over the past two decades, Americans are moving in together at a higher rate. The share of U.S. adults who are currently married steadily declined from close to 60% in the 90s to under half in 2019. Oh, that's interesting. Let me read that again. The share of U.S. adults who are currently married steadily declined from close to 60% in the 90s to under half in 2019, according to Pew. Over the same period, the share of adults age 14 to or 18 to 44 living with a partner climbed to 59%. Interesting. Why do you think that is? I, <laughs> my opinion might kind of break this this uh, concept in this article, Leo, but I, I don't necessarily think that it comes down to marriage. I, I think that a lot of people don't get married until they feel like they're financially a little bit more well off. They put marriage off because of their current financial situation, yes. so they'll live with their, their partner and split rent and split this and split that, whereas a lot of the people that are a little bit more well-off financially at a younger age or more confident to go get married and take that next step and start investing with a, a partner. Whereas those that aren't getting married, they're putting marriage off because they don't have the financial capacity they feel they need to get married, which means they obviously don't have the money to start investing and do these other things. I just think that those it, it comes down to those that aren't as financially set are less likely to get married because they want to get in a better spot financially before they make that leap. So I'm going to disagree a little bit with you and say that it's actually the reason why married couples are more wealthy than unmarried couples is because married couples buy real estate and a house at a much higher rate than those who are not married. Because they're unmarried, they don't ever quite have that security and foundation. And as an example, here's a story that the Wall Street Journal shares. It says, Melissa Maury, a 30-year-old communication manager 
in North Carolina, has been with her boyfriend for five years and living together for nearly four. The two don't share a joint bank account, but they split the cost of rent, rent and other bills. So they did not buy properties. They could have bought properties over the last a home over the last four to five years, but they didn't. And so they missed out on all of that equity versus couples who got married did take the plunge, did feel more stability and foundation, and they bought a house. And that would be, and again, I don't, I, I, this data doesn't exactly say that, but that's what I'm reading in between the lines is if you're married, you're significantly more likely to buy the house. If you're not, there's all sorts of questions, a title, and what if I want to move? And what if our thing doesn't work out? So that would be my assessment. What do you think about that? No, I, I 100% agree. And I, instead of but, saying but you're that, right too, it's the same yeah, thing. Well, I, I think that that's exactly yeah. my point, Leo, is they're not getting married and they're not buying a house because they don't have the financial means to do yeah. either. But these people that are taking a leap and are getting married, a big decision factor there to get married was the financial capabilities, which means they go on and they have the ability to buy a house and they're, they're able to start investing, which isn't the case for all of them. But I bet that's a big, big, big skew here when it comes to these numbers. Here's another thing. It says, says, married people may be much more likely to have these conversations around what goals they have for their financial future. There seems to be something very special and unique about deciding to share finances. You know, it's interesting, and I've been uh, going down this uh, rabbit hole following Alex Hormozzi uh, quite a bit. Interesting guy. And so it's really interesting to them because he and, uh, and his wife, Layla, they kind of got married pretty quickly. And it was almost like going to be super helpful for their business. And so they were married, you know, personally, and then they were business partners and they kind of worked together. And I think there's a, there's something about that. When you do get married, you're much more likely to talk about the financial future because, hey, you're married. So it, it is a joint future. Whereas if you're not, there's always, you know, this possibility that one foot is out the door. You don't quite have that uh, locked in. That's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I understand two people's point of view where it's like, listen, more than half of people who get married are, are not going to stay married. They're going to get divorced. So I get that. Uh, I get that concept, too. But I do know that all of the, the data, again, just going strictly off the data shows that people who are able to stay married and stay married to the same person end up having a much more successful financial life than those that don't. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that part too. Like <clears throat> being willing to make more of those long-term investment decisions is a lot easier when you're married than you're dating with someone. Because even though to a lot of people it's nothing more than a title, but that title is a long-term commitment and, and deems I'm willing to, to take this leap and, and trust you. So I agree. All right, let's say both married and unmarried couples who do pool finances also experience greater relationship satisfaction. Housing, oh, here it is. Housing is one of the biggest factors in establishing couples' wealth compared with single people and cohabitating couples. Married couples hold a larger concentration of housing wealth, according to data from the St. Louis Fed. Most of my married friends have bought a house, Miss Mowry said, noting high housing costs in her area. I just don't know how they did it. Everyone talks about, so that's, that's the thing, right? Maybe when you get together and you're married, maybe you really start focusing together on what can we do to earn more, pay off debt, save more and work towards a, a better future. And that certainly might be part of the reason why married couples have a four time higher net worth. And this isn't even comparing married couples who are in their like, uh, you know, 40s or 50s, where I'm sure that number is probably even a bigger divide. This is just from that 25 to 34 age gap. So interesting thing there that, uh, and, and I would bet, uh, bet too that people that have kids. I guess that would be my next question. Do married couples who have kids versus those who don't? I wonder who has a higher net worth than that. Exactly. Yeah, that would be interesting that. to see. Who knows? Who knows? That could go either way. I think a lot of it comes down to like the willingness to hold each other accountable to, like being willing to call someone out if they're, if they're not doing well. I, I can tell you right now, I have no problem calling Marie out if she's not sticking to, to her side of the deal on finances, whereas I've been in serious, serious relationships that – we're to the point where it almost became marriage and I never would have been like, what the hell are you spending your money on for this dress? Like it, it's just, there's that personal, there's that barrier there. Even though you are living together, you are serious, you are committed. 
if you don't have those combined finances, who are you to try and hold them accountable if you haven't so sat true. down and, and made those goals? So, so true. So true. So something for you guys to consider as you build your empires and take your business to the next level here in 2023. So fun, fun little episode, interesting topics. Great to talk about the uh, NFL today, uh, fintechs, how you build a fintech, documenting our journey here and how you can you know do the same if you're, if you're working with us or working on your own business. And uh, also the, uh, the ups and downs there with TikTok will be interesting to see. But I, I do remember one of my mentors saying about six months ago, hey, if you're heavily invested in TikTok and you're a TikTok star, you better start migrating over to YouTube and the other, uh, the other platforms because if you don't, you are taking a big, big risk. And now you've got those TikTok influencers. They're over at Capitol Hill hoping things work out. But uh, it's not looking too promising, at least not right now. Well... Time to go to Taylor Swift. All Let's right, guys. Yeah, we, we got to go to Taylor Swift. Uh, my daughter is super excited uh, to go. I know uh, I know you and Marie, that was a good little Christmas. Uh, great, great Christmas. Best Christmas ever for Kayla. <laughs> she's, uh, she's super excited. I know you, know you guys are excited, too. So, yep, uh, we're going to go see uh, Taylor Swift. I heard she was uh, singing like 44 songs for over three hours. I've never heard of someone doing that at a concert. That is unbelievable. I, no comment. Which I I hope that doesn't happen in Vegas. I Dude, for, for Kayla's sake, I hope it happens. You better get ready. <laughs> Holy shit! If I'm listening to Taylor, Taylor Swift, for Kayla's three talking hours. about, and I'm not going to go take a bathroom break. I'm like, no, I definitely am. I'm going to stay hydrated. When I got to pee, you I'm going to just go pee. gave me anxiety, Leo. <laughs> She's like, Dad, you can't leave. You can't go to the bathroom. Don't drink too much water. I'm like, I'm going to drink water if I have to go. I'm going. So. <laughs> All right. But, well. yeah, I mean, she's uh, – you got to take your hat off to her. This girl, uh, she's got to she, – you know what? Relentless. She's, yeah. she's relentless. We're going we're gonna to give her that. She is a relentless uh, performer, apparently. She is indeed. All right, guys. Have an awesome week. Spend it with ones you love. Build your empire. Focus on solutions. Be relentless. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Go Figure Podcast. If you learned something that will help your business or family, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star. If we added value to your day, then share the show with someone who wants to get their money right and be sure to subscribe to the Seven Figures Funding YouTube channel. If you're a business owner and a parent committed to getting your money right for your family, then check out the MyFigures.com money app with a free 30-day trial to manage your money, track your net worth, and build a profit-first business through our fintech platform. God bless, and we'll see you next time on the Go Figure Podcast.